This morning we begin our Church Improvement Series, which is a, an annual series that we preach here at River Hills, uh, where we take time to go through elements of what makes us a church. Uh, and so in past years, we have focused on one or more of our 10 core values, uh, but this year uh, it seemed wise that our primary focus would be on our church's purpose and mission statement. And so um, let me just remind us, right, that our purpose as uh, River Hills, we say our purpose is to d display the greatness of God. And our mission uh, is that we will declare the greatness of God and serve others for joy and his honor. And so this morning, we're going to begin uh, our series by looking at the Great Commission. Uh, and, and really, I think that's the foundation of uh, every church. Um, and then in the coming weeks, we'll hear from Mark Milligan and uh, Paul Martin and Mike Vogel, uh, and they will lay out uh, other aspects of uh, our, our church mission and uh, purpose and the fruit that we hope uh, will be produced from that. And it's my prayer that these sermons will remind us of why we, as a church, as River Hills Community Church, exists, and it'll help us to stay focused on the work that God has called us to, the work that he's called us to pursue, uh, as well as uh, encouraging us in our walk with Christ uh, and helping us uh, to love him all the more. So let me pray for our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at uh, your word uh, today, um, as we heard it read, uh, as we uh, consider it, I pray, Father, that you would focus our minds, quiet our hearts, Father, of distractions that we would bring with us. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would be at work, not only in the words that I speak, but in the words that each of us hears and receives. I pray that your truths would, would go forth from here and touch our very hearts and our lives. I pray that we would not simply be persuaded by argument, but that we would be changed by your spirit. Father, we want to be a church that reflects the Great Commission. We want to be a people uh, that is, uh, is sent by the mission that, that Christ laid out here for us. I pray that you would do that. We need your help in this, and uh, we need you to glorify yourself, both for our joy and uh, for our flourishing. And so, Father, be with us now. Illumine us and uh, cause your Son to be made much of. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, uh, my family would go on vacation uh, each year uh, up to a little cabin near Minocqua, Wisconsin. And uh, we, would, we would vacation with another family, and there were little tiny cabins um, that we would stay in. And uh, the, the rules for us were different at the lake than they were at home. Our kids got to call adults by their first names. It's kind of cool. There was no TV, and um, this is like before there were smart devices. Uh, and so our parents had us unplugged by forbidding watches, right? That's, that's how old school that was, right? Um, there was one phone, but it, it was frightening when it rang. I think it rang maybe once or twice the entire time. And it was in a different building. So it wasn't even in the little cabins that we were staying in. We spent our days swimming and canoeing, sailing, and taking walks. Um, and as a young child, it was awesome, right? It was a happy time full of fun and joking and laughter. Uh, I was the youngest of our crew, 
And as, as I'm about to tell, uh, let me tell you a story. I was the youngest, and, and so I would be watching everybody around me, and I would, uh, I would observe and be influenced by how they interacted with one another. And there was always a spirit of care and compassion, of love, affirmation, encouragement. It was, it was one of the few times during the year when I knew that my brother would be kind to me. And so in the evening, our two families would, would come together. They had their own cabin. We had their, our own cabin. But we would come together, and we would crowd around a table. And um, it was very crowded. And ironically, as I'm thinking of this story, there were eight of us. Okay. But I come from a family of four. And so I'm, I'm realizing some of you guys have, like, this is your normal every day. But for us, it was a big deal. <laughs> we would crowd around a little table. I think that was meant for about four people. And we would eat dinner together, and afterward, we'd play games. And eventually, someone would get up and get uh, something to drink from the refrigerator or uh, get some food. And inevitably, someone else would say, while you're up, can you get me you know, a can of soda or a bag of chips or something like that? And this was especially helpful if you were kind of cornered in with your back against the wall, crammed in between other people on both sides. And as the littlest one, uh, I seem to remember that I was often seated in the middle with my back against the wall. And I have this memory of uh, the first time I wanted something to drink. And I'd seen the ritual before. I, I knew how it worked, but I didn't really understand it. Uh, and so we're all seated around the table. We're playing Uno or something like that. And uh, I look not at my dad, I'm smart enough to know that, but our friend's dad. I just look at him and um, I say, Don, while you're up, can you get me? And I didn't get any further, right? Because everybody burst into laughter, right? Because we were all seated. He wasn't up. <laughs> he wasn't up, but, but he did get up and he got me something to drink. And I think sometimes we view the Great Commission in a similar way. It's something that we really want to see accomplished, but it's something that we would prefer that somebody else does for us. Right? But the Great Commission is not a request of a child who doesn't understand what he's asking for. Right? It's not a dying wish of a man who wasn't able to finish his mission, right? finish the work I started. Right? It's not the desperate plea of a worker about to miss a deadline unless someone bails him out. And Jesus, the one who gives us the Great Commission, right? he's the risen and exalted Christ who's conquered death. He's not, he's not stuck in a corner, unable to accomplish this. He has divine authority over all things. God the Father has appointed him to be the righteous judge who will one day judge all the world in righteousness. And so what does he do? He comes to his disciples and he commissions them to reach the world with the gospel. The words in the Great Commission uh, establish the agenda of the church throughout the ages. And in his divine wisdom and infinite power, God calls and uses his disciples to make more disciples, who will in turn make more disciples, who will make more disciples, and so on and so forth. And in the process, 
The glory and greatness of God is put on display and is made known throughout the earth. As the exalted judge and king over all the earth, Jesus Christ calls his church to reach the world with the gospel. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. And there are three ways that I want to touch on this morning from our text. That as a church and as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to live in response to the Great Commission. And so as the exalted judge over the earth, Jesus Christ calls the church to reach the world with the gospel by first trusting in the authority of Christ. So the first thing is trusting in the authority of Christ. Now to put uh, this into context, uh, as I love to do, Right. We, if you look at the beginning of chapter 28, we see that the chapter begins um, at the dawn of Easter morning. Right. The women are going to Jesus' tomb, uh, thinking that they will find him there. I mean, not alive there. They think they'll find the tomb uh, with Jesus still dead there. But instead, they're met with an angelic messenger. Look with me, if you, and I would encourage you to have your Bibles open to Matthew 28. Look with me at uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 28, of, starting with verse 5. Right, they're confronted with this angel, and the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And then in verse 9, just as they, they go to tell the disciples, the women are confronted with Jesus himself. Right? Starting with verse 9, they say, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And that Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So the angel and Jesus have given instructions to the disciples where they should meet Jesus. And that brings us to uh, what we find in our text. Right? And so then with verse 16, we see that now the 11 disciples went up to Galilee, to the mountain to which he had directed them. Here, the first thing we notice is that Matthew reminds us that there are only 11 of the 12 disciples remaining. Right, Judas, after betraying Jesus, had taken his own life, and so he was no longer counted among the 12. And it says that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. At the sight of the risen Christ, the, the first response that we see is that of worship. Right, with the women, and then also here with the disciples. Their first response is worship. This is the first encounter that Matthew records for us of his disciples seeing the risen Jesus Christ. And all throughout the Gospels we see right, that Jesus has been leading his disciples to understand his true identity as the Son of God. But it's hard to understand until... They see him for who he is. And so now their response, indeed, is of worship. But it also says that some doubted. Now, it's not clear if those who doubted were the 11 or if there were others there as well. 
All right, throughout the gospel accounts, um, through the other gospel accounts, I should say, uh, the 11 disciples had at least two or three encounters with Jesus after he rose from the dead. Right? We think specifically of Thomas, right, who saw Jesus. He doubted first when he heard the report, but then when he saw Jesus, he worshipped. And so it seems that this, since this is not the first time the 11 uh, are seeing Jesus, that it's probably additional disciples that were there, the brothers that he told them to go meet him in Jerusalem. And we have accounts of other disciples uh, seeing Jesus after he rose from the dead, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's the risen Christ. And then when we find uh, the disciples in the upper room, there's 120 who are listed as being present. And so it is not unthinkable that this is a larger crowd that Jesus is talking to. It's the 11 and then others. And some worshipped, some had doubts. But what I think, what I want us to draw out from here, from that one little comment, is that it's interesting that Jesus doesn't dismiss, disqualify, or ignore those who were there who had doubts. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't say, excuse me, this is just for the eleven. Some of you uh, might be tempted to look at your own faith and compare yourself to other Christians around you that you know, and you might think that God can't use you, right? Because your faith isn't strong enough. Or maybe you struggle with doubts. Or maybe you think that God won't use you uh, because you aren't as outgoing or as gifted as other people that you know. Right, kids, right? This might be you. Kids, you might think that all this that happens up here and the Great Commission itself, that's meant for your parents. That's meant for the adults. And parents, you might think that all this is really just for those who have time. And grandparents, you might think that you're just too old to make a difference and have an impact. But the beauty of this is that Jesus does not base any part of the Great Commission on your strength or your charisma or your abilities not in your personality, right? As the risen Christ, Jesus bases his command to reach the world with the gospel on his own authority. It's his authority. Verse 18, we see, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So what does that mean, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus? Well, we can think of glimpses that, that have shown that authority throughout the gospels, we see in chapter 5 of Matthew that he has authority over disease and sickness. He has authority over demons. He has authority over wind and weather, as we see in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, we see that he has authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to call a person to deny himself, to take up his cross, and to follow Jesus in chapter 16. And then in chapter 25, Jesus very clearly says that he has authority over the final judgment. We see from places like Philippians 2, right, that the obedient son, because uh, as the obedient son, the father has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's, that's us as well. 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is no one with greater authority than Jesus. And he says, because of this authority, I'm telling you something. I'm giving you a command. And so how should we respond to that authority? Well, the proper response first is worship. Right? He alone is worthy of our praise and affection. Right? There's no greater treasure in all of the world than him. No greater joy that can be found than that can be found in him. We should also trust in the authority of Christ over every part of our lives. Recognizing there really is no greater authority. There's no competition. Right? Even the enemies of God are no match for him. And so we should humbly submit ourselves to his authority over our lives, really by not acting that we're the king, not acting that we are in charge of everything. We should be humbled that he would come down and even talk to us, even address us, even not just address the 11, but all these disciples, those who worshiped and those who doubted. When we think about the authority of Christ in our own lives, in our own world, we need to remember that there is no danger, there's no fear, there's no sorrow that you will face in your lifetime that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? Satan would have you believe otherwise, but Jesus has authority over and is greater than even right, the most sinister of political leaders, the most corrupt of cultures, the most twisted and anti-God human ideologies. And Jesus has authority over and is greater than, than your boss who hates Christians, over your coworkers who gossip about you. Right, over your classmates who, thinks Christ, who, who think Christians are arrogant and closed-minded and naive. It's greater than your neighbors who just think you're weird. And so trusting, placing our trust in the authority of, of Jesus might mean loving him more than our own reputation. That's certainly possible. And believing that the gospel is, is more beautiful and more comforting uh, than the lies that the world is selling. It also might mean trusting that if God calls you to step outside of your comfort zone and to risk your reputation to share the gospel with the people who are in your life, then you can trust that that path of obedience has been laid out before you, that he's, he's prepared like that before you, even before you take your first step, that path has been laid out for you. Right? It's because of the authority of Jesus that we know that the whole world will indeed be reached with the gospel. We don't need a better plan. We don't need more enthusiasm or cheerleading. We have Christ, and we need to trust in his authority to accomplish his plan, a plan that includes, as we'll see very soon, all believers, you and me, a plan that puts God's greatness on display by accomplishing amazing things through very ordinary, weak, and broken Christians like you and I. And so, as the exalted judge over all the earth, Jesus Christ calls the church to reach the world with the gospel first by trusting in his authority, and secondly, by obeying the commands of Christ. So trusting in the authority of Christ and obeying the commands of Christ. 
Look with me then at verse 19. Jesus says, he tells them, that therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So after Jesus asserts his authority, he tells his disciples to make disciples. All the things that are around that, that's what he's telling them. He's telling them to make disciples. So grammatically, I think it's helpful for us to hear, we don't see this necessarily in the English, but grammatically, that word that we translate, make disciples, is the only imperative listed there. It's, it's the only command, as kind of the part of speech, uh, in the original Greek. The other words that we see, such as go, baptize, teach, right, those are, are participles that support the verb of making disciples. So you could really translate uh, the verbs like this, going, or as you go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. So going, baptizing, and teaching are all supporting baptize. Uh, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Going, make, uh, going and baptizing and teaching are all meant to support making disciples. They're all part of making disciples. So a disciple, what is a disciple? Right? We've heard it's not just Christianity that has disciples, but what is a disciple? Not just one of the 11. A disciple is a follower. Right? But, but it's more than that for uh, a disciple of Jesus, right? It's not just someone who reads about a, a great leader, and so you're a, a disciple of their philosophy. A disciple of Jesus, first and foremost, needs to be more than just a follower. A disciple of Christ is a person who is in a, a personal saving relationship with him. Right? They need to be a Christian, right? You must be a Christian to be a disciple. And that's why we often think about, as Jesus says, go make disciples, we think about evangelism and about world missions. Disciples are those who hear God's word. They understand and obey Christ's teaching. So to be a disciple, you have to be a Christian. But that being said, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. There are no Christians who are not disciples. Right? A Christian is not just someone who comes to church, and a disciple is someone who's like a super Christian, a serious Christian. Right? Just because uh, your parents, kids, just because your parents are Christians, or, or maybe your spouse is a Christian, it doesn't mean that you are a Christian if you don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Christians are people who have a real faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of sins. And so what I want to emphasize is that these words that Jesus says here are for all of us. The words that he speaks here are meant for every single Christian. So what is the call? He says, going, make disciples. So make disciples of all the nations. Well, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the reason why this would probably be a shock, certainly at this point, was that during Jesus' earthly ministry, before the crucifixion, he had said that his ministry was limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we see that in Matthew 15, 24. But now, Jesus tells them that the places where he exercises his authority, his absolute authority, 
include heaven and earth, all everywhere. And so he's going to send his disciples to the nations. He's going to send them out. This isn't Israel any, any longer, just Israel, but it's the whole world to the nations. But the passages that Julie read for us earlier reflect that this has been God's plan from the beginning. Right? It's reflected in, in God's promise to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the verse uh, in Isaiah uh, 49.6 says, I will make you a light for the nations, and my salvation, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. He's talking about Jesus there. But then listen to this passage from Daniel. It's a vision uh, Daniel had uh, from chapter 7. Daniel 7, starting with verse 13, he said, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Right? That's so even back in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of this time. And then we see it being played out then after, uh, after this, this has occurred, right, on the mountain. In the book of Acts, we see that as the church uh, begins, what is the pattern? It, first, the gospel is preached in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. Finally, then in Revelation, the passage that we also, Julie read for us, uh, we see John describes what the end point will be, right? Where there will be a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation. Uh, so from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? So we see that it, it was promised, and here Jesus is saying, this is the plan. We see it beginning to be executed, and we see the end result. And today, we're somewhere in the middle. Right? Until Christ returns, the work of the Great Commission is our work. It's work that we are called to continue. I want to talk a bit more, though, about going. Right? He says, go make disciples of the nations. So going involves sending. Right? As a church, part of our role in making disciples of all nations is to send and support missionaries. Right? And so we support them with prayer, we support them with resources, and they go out on our behalf because we can't all go. But they go on our behalf. Now, I do pray that God would raise up some from our church um, and call them to, to the work of missions, right? To, to, to go and, and take God's word uh, from here uh, to other nations. And on a side note, if you're interested in pursuing missions, if that's something you've been thinking about or God's laid on your heart, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Read missionary biographies. Right? Our church library has a lot of good ones. Join the missions team. They would love to have you join. Get, then get to know and support our missionaries. So uh, part of going involves sending, but also going involves staying. And what do I mean by that? 
Now, making disciples is not an, individ, uh, not an individual endeavor, right? We, we send missionaries to go, but what do they go and do? They, they don't just share the gospel and then run away. No, they go and they stay. And that, that's, once again, the pattern that we see not only through the book of Acts and the New Testament, but really throughout all of church history. What are they doing? They're, they're going and they're sharing the gospel. And where believers grow up, churches are planted. And those churches, uh, right, those are the ones who do the discipling. It's within the context of a church. Right? Disciples are not called to make converts al- alone, but, but disciples who are recognized and discipled for growth. So making disciples includes helping them identify with Christ. Right? And baptism, right? that's the reason he says, go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them. Why does he say baptizing them? Right? That's not what saves them. We know that. But baptism is a means in which the church recognizes, uh, Mark Dever said, I love how he said it, he said it recognizes heaven's truths and heaven's people. And so they're marked. Right? Baptism is a way to say, hey, this is a Christian. Throughout the book of Acts, when people are saved, they are baptized. And as a church, when, uh, when we have a, a baptism in our own service, what are we doing? We, really, we're seeing that the person is saying, I am a Christian. Right? It's a testimony to us. But it's also, as a church, we are affirming and recognizing the evidence of God's work in their life. Right? Because I, I, what is it? What does baptism do? It identifies us with God, right? We're saying this is a Christian. So when we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, think about that, in the name of, like, we're supposed to be identified with him now in his name. We're supposed to represent who he is, both to the rest of the church, but also to the world. As a church and as disciples, we take the name of Christ in baptism, right? It doesn't mean that we get saved in baptism, but it's, it's the church's way of saying, this is a Christian. And when you look at this person, you can see who Christ is. What does that mean? Well, it, think about this, right? Uh, he tells us that our love should reflect his love. Right? So, so who, what does it look like for, for God to love well, First John, I'm sorry, John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. So think about it, right? Our love for one another should reflect the love, his love for us, right? Our love should reflect his love as we bear his name. That's probably a better way to say it. Our love reflects his love as we bear his name. And so if you have someone who doesn't know what the love of God looks like, he ought to be able to look at Christians. So when we baptize, we're identifying with the community of faith. We're saying this is who we belong to. This is the name that we fall under. And then the other part that uh, he lays out here in making disciples is teaching. Right? So making disciples also includes teaching, but not just a dispersion of knowledge, right? not just giving out of facts, but teaching that's transformative. Right? Jesus did not say, teach them all I've commanded you. Right? 
You could do that. He could have said that. Teach everything I've taught. Just tell them everything I've taught. No, instead he says, teach them to observe or to obey all that I've commanded you. So it's not simply head knowledge, but it's knowledge that is meant to be applied and lived out in the life of a Christian. And really that can only happen uh, within the context of accountability and encouragement in community. Right? And this is very applicable for us today. Right? So you can find better teachers online. You can find a better sermon on this passage online. Just go home and just look it up, and you will, you'll probably find a lot of sermons that are better preached than this one right here online. But those teachers don't know your specific context. Right? And, and think about it. They, they also can't see your blind spots. Right? They can't see if you are misunderstanding or misapplying something that they have taught in a, a podcast or a sermon. Jesus told them to teach, in part of making disciples, teach them to observe all that he commands. Not just their favorite parts, right? I mean, if we start going out online, we can find sermons on just this passage, and then that's all that we study, but that's not all that Jesus commands, is it? And so it's within the accountability of a local church that we're able to see this lived out. right? Because all that Jesus commands includes the command to believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It includes to love one another as I've loved you. It includes his command to make disciples, this command. And what that means is that his disciples were not simply to make converts. They were to make disciples who make disciples. So to faithfully execute this, right, is to replicate ourselves. When I was at Illinois State University for my undergrad, a friend of mine uh, told me that, that we could actually, so I was a brand new Christian, and he said, did you know that we can get credit, like, like college credit, to go uh, learn about the Bible? And I was like, sign me up, that sounds cool. I was so excited, until I learned the person who was teaching this class wasn't even a Christian. And in fact, they didn't even like Christians. And so think about that, right? You've got someone who's not a Christian teaching the content of the Bible. Do you think that his teaching was transformative? Do you think his teaching uh, helped his, uh, the, the learners to grow in their relationship with Christ? Probably not. It wasn't the intention of that teacher uh, to make disciples. Well, actually, probably was the intention of the teacher to make disciples, but not disciples of Christ, perhaps skeptics of Christianity. But in this command, right, Jesus is telling his disciples he's, that they need to make others who are like themselves, full disciples of Christ. One more thing I want to say about this verse, and that's the word go, right? Or as you go, as it can be translated. What does that look like for us, right? I've already mentioned that we send and support missionaries, um, and so, once again, if you feel like you're being called, that's wonderful. Join the missions team. We'd love to see more uh, of sending more people. But, but what about us as individuals? Right? The 
Like I said, some may be called to missions, but, but what if you're not called to missions? This command is still for you, still for me. We're still called to go, but once again, if you translate the first participle as you go, you can begin to consider what it means for your life. Think about it. Remember, God, in his infinite wisdom, his you know, infinite authority, what did he do? He places each of us where we are. God strategically placed every single believer in relationships and situations that are, are unique to you. Like, for a stay-at-home mom, it's going to be, with young kids, it's going to be the majority of your opportunities to share the gospel and make disciples will be with your kids. And so as you go, you make disciples, those who are around you, and that'll be your children. For young people, right, it might be your siblings, your friends, your classmates, your teammates. Right? It might be your neighbors, your family members, people you work with people you know from the community. For some, it might be an unbelieving spouse or family member, maybe even one who's walked away from the church. Right? But you are strategically placed in a relationship that's unique to anybody else here. And so I want you to consider how God has who God has placed in your life that you can reach out to with the hope and encouragement of the gospel. Now, as I say that, I realize that that might produce anxiety in some of you. But remember, it's, it's not your authority or persuasion, but it's because of Jesus' authority that you can know that, that God will bring all of his lost sheep to himself. And so it may be that the person that you're thinking of, oh, they'll never come to Christ. They never would. That's not your choice. You just get to go as you go, right? Courage in the gospel. And also know that, that he can use you to reach some of those people and give them the same joy that you have in Christ. So remember, this is, you're not like going out there telling bad news. I mean, there is some bad news to the gospel, right? You're a sinner. But I think everybody pretty much knows that already. And so God has given the command not simply to missionaries, but to each of us. And as the exalted judge of the earth, Jesus Christ calls the church to reach the world with the gospel. And this, we're going to go into our third point by first trusting the authority of Christ, by obeying the commands of Christ, and third, by depending on the presence of Christ. Depending on the presence of Christ. Jesus closes out the Great Commission with words of assurance. Verse 20, the, the second half says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is Jesus saying here other than he's, he's promising to be present with his disciples and their disciples and their disciples. So once again, that includes us. Until when? Until they fail? No. Well, uh, in, until they stop doing a good enough job? No. Until the end of the age. Right? The comfort of God's presence and protection and assistance is with us now, always, each moment of our lives. 
Right? It's, it's his authority and presence, the presence of Christ in our lives at work in us by the Spirit that makes it possible for us to do things like overcome or even rejoice in things like our weaknesses. Makes it possible for us to be empowered to accomplish the work that he's called us to. Let's face it. The whole idea of the Great Commission, from an earthly standpoint, from a human standpoint, it's not really that smart, right? Think of the 11, okay? Okay, we'll throw out Judas, right? But think of the 11. Peter betrayed him. Everybody but John ran away, and yet he entrusts the whole of the church and the future of the church on these 11. Well, there's others there. Some of them doubted, and yet he put all of this upon them. What does that do? Well, it shows off that he is present with his people, leading and guiding and convincing, doing the work that he calls us to do in and through us. I don't know about you, but the whole idea of sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't want to hear the gospel, that's not what gets me up in the morning. It's not really exciting for me. But yet, when you begin to share the gospel and you start to see that God is doing something in that person's life, all of a sudden you realize you're there. God has called you to do this work and to speak these words, but it's really God who's at work. And it's exciting to be part of that. That me and my weakness would be able to be a tool that God would use to bring someone to Christ or to encourage them in their faith, to strengthen them when they feel weak. That is what he's calling us to do. Jesus' words reminds us that he is faithful to be with us, even when we're weak, even when we fall short in our obedience, even when we feel far away from him. Jesus is present with his disciples. And so that the call of the Great Commission to make disciples, to replicate yourself, is a call that he has empowered in you to do. And so if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you in this work. Right? No one is exempt Right? If you're not a Christian, you're exempt from making disciples. But you're also invited to be part of his family. That this gospel that was given to, to every believer is available to you. Right? That he will forgive your sins and make you part of his family. And if he does that, he'll call you to share that great joy and encouragement with others. What an amazing privilege that we have as believers. How do we accomplish the Great Commission? How does God accomplish the Great Commission? He accomplishes it through broken people, through people who are weak and who show off his glory by showing that even through weakness, the gospel can go to the ends of the earth. And so as God's people, we trust in the authority of Christ, we obey the commands of Christ, and we depend upon the presence of Christ to do his work in and through us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the gospel would never be something that we would take for granted. And the call to replicate ourselves would never be something uh, that we would fail to be enamored with. Father, you are a good God, and we thank you that you allow us to take part in, in sharing that goodness and reminding each other of that goodness and of telling others who don't know about you 
of your goodness. I pray, Father, that you would use each of us individually to do the work that you've called us to do in sharing the gospel and in making disciples and encouraging other believers. That you would help us to be faithful, to pray for and to reach out to those who are in our lives, whether it's people in our growth groups or people in our neighborhood. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that whether it be encouragement or the gospel, that you would help us to be faithful. And then as a church, Lord, help us to be a church that is driven by what you call us to be. That means disciple-making people. Help us to to support the work of, of making disciples, both here and throughout the world. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to to send, and those that we send, that we would remember them and pray for them. Father, that we would also uh, encourage and strengthen one another, uh, whether they are brand new in their faith or whether they have been uh, walking with you for many, many years. Father, I pray that they would be seen fully as members of the church, disciples to be encouraged and strengthened. And so help us to love one another and to care for one another as you have called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.